lesson in our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31 and let me just remind you this is God's word to us and it's given to us because he loves us on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless uh, the reading, as we have already read, of your word, and now the preaching, that you would open our eyes to be able to see you, our ears to hear you, our hearts and minds to understand what it is that you would have to say to us today, because yours is the voice that we need to hear above, above all other voices, the voice of love. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples, his disciples who are scared to death that Jesus is, in fact, dead, the one who they put all their trust would bring God's kingdom salvation to bear in this world. And they're scared to death that now Jesus' enemies are coming to get them, that uh, they're now going to turn their guns on them, and Jesus isn't there to protect them anymore. So they are holed up and they are hiding and the doors are locked, so the text says. And so Jesus teleports into their midst and says, peace be with you. 
Now, Jesus isn't there to prank them or to show off his new resurrection teleportation powers, which are pretty cool. Uh, He's there to bring them peace. He's there to bring them shalom. I'm here to bring you flourishing. Do not be afraid. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look at the wounds of my cross and see me, hear me, touch me, smell me. Know that I am not dead. I am fully alive. And understatement of the year award, John says the disciples were glad that, uh, that he made this appearance to them. But one disciple missed out on this encounter with Jesus, Thomas. Oh, doubting Thomas. The disciples find their buddy after this encounter. They go to Tom and they say, hey, Jesus is alive. We've seen him and he has these cool superpowers now and he breathed on us with the Holy Spirit and and we feel so much better and we're going out to tell the whole world that Jesus is king. And Thomas says, "Uh, yeah, cool story, bro. Nah, I ain't buying it. I'm not buying it. It says in verse 25 that the disciples told him that they had seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Doubting Thomas. How the church is eternally grateful For your skepticism. How the church is eternally grateful for your doubt, your pessimistic cynicism, because without you, we'd be sorely lacking your courageous example of what it means to have faith. You see, belief is not easy for us. It wasn't easy for the disciples either. It's especially not easy for us because we live in an age where doubt is a virtue. I would say, really, cynicism is a virtue. It's our highest virtue that we should submit everything to fierce scrutiny, that that is the sign of maturity. That is what it means to be wise. That is open-minded. Now, of course, a healthy amount of skepticism is necessary for wise discernment. But prioritizing doubt, frankly, is absurd. Because we all live by faith every single day. And it's not just preachers who say this all over the world. Scientists, philosophers, educators, economists. In the midst of an age where everything is supposed to be relative, where everything is skeptical and meant to be doubted, all are saying you cannot know anything unless you prioritize belief over doubt. We all must live with belief and trust to commitment to some way of leaning into the world in order to make sense of it. Otherwise, we'll go crazy. Otherwise, you'd never set foot outside your door every day. We all prioritize faith over doubt, while at the same time, doubt is necessary. Doubt is a necessary and complementary component of what it means to have great faith. Because without a healthy dose of doubt, we don't grow. 
Without a healthy dose of doubt, we do not grow from one stage of our faith to the next. Without doubt, we never question our assumptions and we tend to just get stuck and stagnate in our faith right where we're at. Mother Teresa, the Catholic nun who founded the Missionaries of Charity, who became synonymous of what it meant to have the compassion of Christ and to bring the compassion of Christ to bear in the world. Well, after Mother Teresa died, portions of a letter that she wrote to her spiritual director were released to the public. And in these letters, it became clear that Teresa, Mother Teresa, who gave her life for the poor so sacrificially, she endured decades, decades of doubt. She wrote in her letters things like, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. Mother Teresa, to the general public, hearing these confessions kind of shook us. Like, my goodness, I mean, if Mother Teresa of all people felt this way, what about me? They shook us, but should they have? Should they have been so discomforting to us? Because I would say that people of immense, deep, abiding, quiet faith often suffer seasons of great doubt because their faith is continually growing and expanding and going deeper and deeper. They don't settle where they're at. They allow this refining process of doubt. They allow it so that they may transform and grow into people whose faith trusts God at an even deeper level. The writer Brian McLaren in his book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About It, says this when he speaks of saints such as Mother Teresa. He says, they saw purgation or these seasons of doubt, these dark nights of the soul, these trials of faith. They saw purgation as the painful and necessary process by which we are stripped of know-it-all arrogance, ego, and self-will. Perplexity, I realized, was working like an x-ray of my soul, exposing so much of my so-called spirituality as just a vanity project of my ego, an expression of my arrogant desire to always be right, my desperate and fearful need to always be in control, my unexamined drive to tame the wildness of life by naming it and dominating it with words." The doubt of perplexity the mystics helped me see was just the fire I needed to purge me of previously unacknowledged arrogance. For the first time it dawned on me, there's a difference between doubting God and doubting my understanding of God. There's a difference between trusting God and trusting my understanding of God. Would I be able to doubt my understanding of God while simultaneously trusting the God beyond my understanding? You see, Thomas the Apostle is not our whipping boy of shame for doubt. Don't be like Thomas. 
And I don't believe that Jesus' words to him after he appears to Thomas are meant to shame him. That was never what Jesus was ever about. They are to say that doubt is a necessary tool to reach new depths of belief, new depths of faith, new depths of living and knowing, and above all, new depths of love. Because ultimately what we get, if we allow this transforming fire of doubt in our life, is not more facts or dogmas. What we get is the person and presence of Jesus as he is. Not as how we want him to be, not as how we think he should be, but as he is, wounded, just like we are, and with us in love. And to be honest, that's what I think Thomas was most afraid of. You see, that he had lost the person in presence of love. Now, of course, Thomas, like all disciples, they had all sorts of misguided expectations about what Jesus was supposed to be and do. But I think more than anything, his doubt was because he was just afraid that he had already lost Jesus once. I don't think Thomas's doubt and skepticism was whether or not the resurrection could be real or not. It wasn't about whether or not he could scientifically accept or suspend all logic and believe that a human being could be dead for three whole days and then come back to life. I think Thomas would not allow himself to believe the resurrection was real because he had already lost so much. And he didn't want to let his heart get broken again for the second time. When I think back on, there's only a few times that Thomas is mentioned in the Gospels, but when you go back and look at him, I think Thomas all along this journey with Jesus was guarding his heart against getting his hopes up too much. That Thomas had been preparing himself to get used to disappointment. You remember when Lazarus died? Jesus finds out the news, Lazarus is sick, and he does this weird thing, he delays, right, he waits a couple days, Lazarus dies, then he says, hey, let's go down there to where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, and his disciples express concern, like, hey, you really think this is a good idea, because if we go back to where they live, that puts you closer to the Jewish authorities who want to kill you. This doesn't sound like a wise move. And he says, nope, we're going to go anyway, and what does Thomas say? Well, let's just go and die with him, I guess. Or something like that. You see, Thomas expected Jesus to get himself killed. He expected the system, the big wheel, to crush Jesus. That Jesus would continue to say things and do things to subvert their authority and power and irritate them enough that the church and the state would eventually decide he had to be silenced and would do away with them. That's what Thomas expected to happen. And so when Jesus is executed... And buried, Thomas was probably like, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I knew he was going to get himself killed. And he did. Because in some ways, it's easier to just believe that. It's easier to believe and trust and control that death is the only answer. That disappointment is inevitable and unavoidable. 
It's easier to believe that true change and transformation is unlikely, so just don't get your hopes up. It's easier to believe that you'll never experience true healing and wholeness from your sin, so just accept it. It's easier to believe that the systems and structures will never be reformed, so don't bother trying. It's a whole lot harder to accept the truth that the universal pattern all around us in the universe and the cosmos is that it is through death that resurrection occurs. Because if resurrection is real, you don't get to quit. If resurrection is real, you don't get to give up. If resurrection is real, you don't get to give up on change and transformation being possible, both in your own personal struggles with sin and brokenness in your life and the broken systems and structures of this world. If resurrection is real, you don't get to give up that that change can happen. If the resurrection is real, then life is not conquered by death. Death is not the end. It is not the final answer. Love wins. And if the resurrection is real, then you don't get to give up on love. Because love did not give up on you. I think that was what Thomas was afraid of. He couldn't allow himself to believe, I will never believe again, because he couldn't allow himself to hope again that Jesus' love was real. That his resurrection was real and therefore his pain, his despair, his resentment. That death was not the inevitable conclusion of everything. And I think that's sometimes what we are afraid of too when it comes to believing in the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, then we don't get to settle. We don't get to just stay where we're at. Because life and death and resurrection and life and death and resurrection and life and death and resurrection is happening over and over again and again and again. And we're called to participate in that process, to transform, to be renewed, to grow deeper and deeper in our faith and our trust and our assurance of the love of Christ for us. We don't get to settle. And if we are resurrection people, we got to live. Jameson was saying earlier, 50 days of Easter to remind us to celebrate, to be alive, to celebrate life and share that life with every person we possibly can. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.